Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org slash match to maximize your gift today. This is Florida Matters. I'm Robin Sessingham. Alternative kinds of housing, like shipping containers or tiny houses, are quickly getting more popular. This week, we talk about whether they could help relieve some of the pressure from the affordable housing crunch. From the Donna Studio at WUSF Public Media, I'm Robin Sessingham. Just before the new year, WUSF produced a special report, Growing Unaffordable, that looked at people here in Hillsborough County who are finding it harder and harder to find a home they can afford. One of the questions that we want to look at today is, how do we think outside of that big box? What about tiny houses or RVs or container homes? Here in the studio with us is Elizabeth Strom, Associate Professor at USF School of Public Affairs. Hi, Elizabeth. Hello. Mickey Jacob is an architect with BDG Architects and chairman of the Tampa Downtown Partnership. Welcome, Mickey. Thank you, Robin. And Robert Cox is CEO of Sundog Structures, a maker of shipping container structures. Hi, Robert. Hello, Robin. So, Robert, you make houses out of shipping containers, and not everybody is familiar with what that means, what that is. Can you describe it? Sure. We use 40-foot shipping containers that are 8 feet wide, and we use the high-cube containers that are 9 foot 6 high. And so these are containers that are built overseas and filled with televisions and destined for stores, and they take those containers, ship them to us, And then we have a team of uh, welders and uh, carpenters who take the containers apart in many ways. They cut out walls. They cut out windows and doors and those kinds of openings. And then we put them back together on site. Okay. And Elizabeth Strom, you, in your work, I know you've looked a lot at um, urban planning and the arts and how that all relates. So when the arts and culture become more developed in an urban core, then the downtown of a city becomes more desirable right? And then it becomes more expensive. So how do you see people like artists coping with that kind of a tension? Well, I think you raise a really interesting point. Um, When areas become more attractive, that's wonderful. People want to be there. But it also means that inevitably land costs go up. And so you have issues of affordability. And usually what happens is that as areas become more attractive, then people who who had lived there previously get pushed out into other areas. And so I think it's very important when we think about urban planning issues and think about places like the downtown to figure out how we're going to have some diversity of population, of people who can live there, whether they're artists or just people whose incomes are aren't great, that we don't want to have either ghettos of very poor people or areas that are exclusively for the very wealthy. I know, Mickey, Jacob, this is something that you think about in your role as the chairman of the Tampa Downtown Partnership. Tampa Downtown Partnership is working hard to make downtown Tampa more vibrant, but then there's a tension between uh, development and inexpensive housing. 
Well, there's attention, uh, and also with the zoning uh, requirements and the code requirements too. What we're seeing right now is a push towards smaller units, so micro unit apartments. We we actually, my role as a Tampa Downtown Partnership, we're looking at it from a philosophical standpoint and a planning standpoint. But my role at my firm is actually we're just doing a couple projects right now that are micro unit projects in downtown. One of them got killed by the city because of the parking requirements. So. One of the challenges we have is that what you see is a unit that's 500 square feet to 600 square feet is a very livable unit. We can design those, and they're comfortable, they're efficient, and they're affordable, especially for young people, whether it's artists, whether it's service industry individuals, whether it's a young person I hire right out of architecture school here at USF, um, looking for ways that they can live close to where they can work, where they can walk, and where the streetscape becomes their living room. So describe what a micro unit is. Is it a studio apartment, what we would have normally called a studio apartment? Is it a condo or is it a rental unit? What is it? Uh, Most of them are rental units. Um, They're about, like I said, 500 to 600 square feet. They're very efficiently designed. What you're seeing is units that have components in it that actually fold up and become two different things. So um, you can fold up a Murphy bed, but you can pull the bottom of the Murphy bed out and it becomes either your sofa or your dining room table. Uh, The storage is integral to it. So it's all space-saving capacity items that make it very uh, flexible to live in. I can definitely see that appealing to someone young, just out of college, no pets, no children maybe, and and hasn't accumulated a lot of stuff. Oh, it works wonderfully, and we're seeing a variety of different people. Uh, we were looking at uh, repurposing a fairly abandoned downtown office building, uh, 12 stories, and we designed it to accommodate all micro units, and the the, the first reservations online were extraordinary. It was 80% reserved within a week. What we're seeing is people really want to live where they work. And accommodating that, people will give up space in order to have that experience of being in a downtown environment that has all the amenities that fit their lifestyle. So you said it was killed because you didn't have parking for we the didn't tenants? Have par- well, yeah, the building didn't have parking. And the parking requirements of the city of Tampa and downtown for a residential unit of that type is one parking space per unit. I want to get into uh, later in the show some hindrances that cities sure. might put up to these kinds of out-of-the-box thinking on things. But, Robert, what about your structures? What about the container structures? How affordable are they, and where can you where can you build them? How are you working with zoning regulations? Sure. So <clears throat> we haven't found a lot of pushback from being able to build in any locations. We find the the uh, cities and municipalities to be pretty receptive at this stage. We're struggling a little bit to try to get a a modular certification at the state level because of the steel not being produced in an American steel manufacturer's setup. So that's one of the challenges for us. But um, I think that it's kind of catching on to the point that cities are starting to embrace it. A few years ago, that was a little bit of a different story, but it's starting to really kind of catch on. What Mickey was saying about uh, smaller units, we're finding to be uh, kind of a really key for us as well. We're trying to build smaller units, but when you do that, you have to kind of compress everything that's already in a in a bigger apartment or dwelling that has to all fit into 640 square feet or something like that for our our needs. We we tend to say that we're about $15 a square foot less than traditional construction. And it can go up and down based on finishes. 
But when you're building really small, the cost per square foot that people are used to analyzing uh, the real estate value by just kind of goes up very quickly in very small units. All right. So I'm trying to get a handle on whether it's affordable or not. I mean, shipping containers are popular now because I think people love the way they look. They love that modern design. But is it affordable? Yeah. $15 a square foot less may or may not be a tipping point for someone. Um, We do have the ability to really kind of minimize the finishes and even allow people to do more of the work themselves, which is something that we're looking at. But it is more affordable than, than traditional construction. We're looking at ways that we can take the idea of the shipping container and its mobility and try to make that into a steel-framed unit that we can use for infill for some of these more affordable types of products. That's really interesting because I would I would think that in a place like Tampa there would be opportunities for infill. Mm. Um, Elizabeth, you had said at one point, I was watching an interview, and you'd said from a bird's-eye view – Tampa was just dominated by parking lots. Could that help with some of the things that Robert's talking about with infill housing, with places to put alternative structures like a tiny house? Absolutely. I think the idea that Tampa's built out is simply not true. Now, I think I recall the interview you're talking about, and I was revisiting it because it was about 10 years ago, pre-Riverwalk, pre-everything. So Tampa has, the downtown has filled in a lot since then. But I think if you look at the downtown itself, especially the area not around the river, but in the center, I'm sure Mickey's aware of this as well, we have a ton of space where we could do denser housing. Um, And so I think the opportunities are absolutely there. You know, whether sort of a tiny home kind of development would be ideal there, I might push back on that a little bit because the whole point of downtowns is to be dense. And so most planners and architects would suggest that your urban core shouldn't have single-family homes. It's a bad use of the land economically and even philosophically. We want the density to get people who go to restaurants and things like that. And so if you have just a few units on a, on a site, you're not going to get that. Right, But, but there's maybe definitely place, space. And, well, maybe in a neighborhood like Temple Terrace or, or Seminole Heights or somewhere not in the downtown urban core of the city. Absolutely. And I think one of the sweet spots, I think, for something like the container homes would be as accessory dwelling units in a place like Seminole Heights, because I think um, there are now talking about ordinances that there's now more flexibility in many places to, if you have a home in a certain size lot, you can put a second unit there. And I would imagine that something like a shipping container unit would work perfectly. And then you're not taking a spot, let's say, on a main transit corridor and putting three units there when you could have put 30. So that's possible now. In Tampa, in Hillsborough County, you could put a shipping container home in your yard. Yes, uh, Seminole Heights is kind of ahead of the curve. I know that the city of Tampa is looking at the success that they had there and expanding it into other areas of the city. But um, it does take time for that to happen. It took, I think, three years for them to be able to get Seminole Heights to be online. Are people doing it? Absolutely. They're doing it all over the country. My son just got married in a container facility in Las Vegas. Um, it's it's interesting to see the dynamics, but I think Robert and Elizabeth are both onto it. Urban density is the key to solving this problem, and disruptive technology and construction is the other key to solving it. We can't solve the affordability problem using typical construction techniques like we do now. We have to look at pre-manufactured component parts even within framework of typical construction that we have in order to make these numbers work. You know, when you look at the statistics in Hillsborough County and uh, there's a very high percentage of people that are paying over 30% of their income on their housing requirements and some people paying as much as 50% of their income, which just makes it 
financially a burden that they can never get out of. So what we need to do is look at what's that magic number that we need to get the construction costs down to so we can bring it to market effectively. We've found that the micro units and what they're calling macro units now, which some people would liken to a typical dormitory type of situation where you actually rent a bedroom and a bathroom and you share a common space that has a kitchen and a living area in it with three or four other people. That's the other new marketplace uh, scenario we're seeing that really, again, brings that number down. So somebody that's making a wage that's a lower-end wage, an entry-level position, can afford to live, again, in an, in an entity where it's close to where they, they work. That's interesting because that's what the colleges are doing now. It is, and it's actually uh, very successful in other markets in terms of outside of the college campus and, and using it in a, an environment, in a, in a workplace environment. Uh, and it makes a lot of sense, to be honest with you. I think there's a socialization aspect of it that's completely different than your normal apartment living. And that's a key to successful cities. We want to create in our new designs and trying to be as disruptive as possible to create these new social collisions that normally don't happen, which really makes a city vibrant. That's where people gather, they congregate. Those are the kinds of environments that you know we're really looking at. How do we create new living examples that, that can hopefully push that forward? So, Elizabeth, another thing that people might want to go back to, I mean, everyone disparages this idea of a grown child living in your basement. Mm -hmm. But, (laughs) you know, setting aside that we don't have basements in Florida, you know, why not have families, different generations living together and pitching in on the rent or pitching in on the mortgage? Is it just a cultural no-no for Americans? Well, I think it depends on the culture because I think there are certainly many cultures within the United States where it's much more typical for adult children to live with their families. But I think having housing that allows for that. So so I don't want a child in my basement, but I sure wouldn't mind having a two-family house where my adult child was in the upstairs apartment. And so I think accessory dwelling units are a great place. Or the point, the time will come where I get kicked into the accessory dwelling unit and my adult child is the one in the main house. But I think you know, part of the problem we've seen in a place like Tampa and many parts of the U.S. is very cookie-cutter development that is driven by by suburban-style developers who have kind of a, a single product that they're trying to sell to all of us. So I think anytime we can look at different ways to build housing to accommodate a lot of different needs and incomes, then then that's a direction we want to go in. This is Florida Matters. I'm Robin Sessingham, and we're talking about whether alternative forms of housing that are gaining in popularity are feasible to deal with the affordable housing crunch. And we're here in the studio with Elizabeth Strom. She's an associate professor at USF's School of Public Affairs. Mickey Jacob is an architect with BDG Architects and chairman of the Tampa Downtown Partnership. And Robert Cox is CEO of Sundog Structures, and they make houses and commercial structures all kinds of things out of shipping containers. How much would it cost to get your least expensive home? Um, it's less than $100,000 for something of an, a 640-square-foot unit. So it's not unaffordable. Uh, we wish we could push that down a little bit more. We're, we're doing everything we can, and we understand that, that there really aren't a lot of people who are serving a market that is a $150,000 or less kind of unit, and there's a, there's a large opportunity in that market. Mm-hmm. Mickey, Jacob, um, you talked about disruptive construction and finding new ways 
to build these homes. Tell me a few things that you're talking about. Well, I think with what Robert's doing is a perfect example of it. It's a, it's a technology that can be controlled in the construction process, which helps control costs. So when you manufacture it in controlled conditions, you get a higher quality product. It's better workmanship. And you're not subject to conditions that you see on a typical job site, rain, wind, time, all those things that, that affect the quality of a project, being able to bring it on the site and being able to be flexible enough that it gives you the opportunity to expand on the project. So you can start out at, at one particular size, but the beauty of what container technology is doing right now is it allows you to expand on that exponentially as much as you want. So that's where I start to see the cost savings coming into place as we continue to go further and be able to control those costs that they have in the manufacturing process that's going to drive those costs down just as we see with any product as it uh, as it develops. Well, it sounds like branding is kind of an important part of this because it sounds like what you're talking about, Mickey, is prefab, prefabricated housing, which you said you can have quality control, it's less expensive, but people kind of maybe turned up their noses at prefab housing. You, you know, we've just, uh, if you look at Sparkman's Wharf, what they've just done with containers and opening that as a, as a retail and a, and, a, and a hospitality place and the success of that. And I think when you look forward as to how we can evolve the whole thing, that's what's exciting to me. And I think Elizabeth touched on the cultural aspect that we have in a community of what our cultural vision is of what a house is. Suburban subdivisions is what our culture tends to look at it. Unfortunately, it's a 1950s solution to a 2018 problem. What about mobile home parks? I mean, that's a community. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't young people, they could get a mobile home for a lot less than a container structure. Are they all 55 and up, Elizabeth? Well, they're not, no, there, there are still some. But um, you know, part of my reaction is that it is sort of rebranding. I mean, tiny homes, when Levittown was created, they built mm-hmm. 700 square foot homes. They weren't built off site, but they were built through such an automated process that it brought down the cost of housing. And yet no one goes to Levittown, New York and says, you know, we've seen the future and here it is. And so some of it is a matter of branding, a certain aesthetic. Um, but in general, we have to say that, that um, mobile homes have not been very well constructed. Many of the parks now that are geared toward a general population that are not 55 and up are in terrible shape. They're not at all hurricane resistant or well insulated. But in a way, you could say that tiny homes of of any kind, but certainly those produced off-site, can replicate the affordability of some of those places and perhaps then address some of the disadvantages of the quality of the construction. Well, what we found is that there are a lot of people who are looking at uh, former mobile home parks and rebranding them with the container uh, structures in mind. Mickey? Um, I think one of the, the challenges of affordability is location. We can build a container home out north of the city, but it doesn't solve the affordability problem of a commute to downtown and having to have a car and gasoline and all of that. So the density issue in terms of our urban planning on trying to look at how do we increase density zoning around our employment basis so we can have affordable, attainable housing for people who work there so they don't have to own a car. So as soon as you take a car out of play in our culture, you're making it much more affordable to live. And quite frankly, you can also put a little more money into your house or your apartment. We're really looking at ways of 
how do we create our transit plan in order to support that? How do we have the kinds of retail and support services close by as well within that zoning in order to support it? It's great if you could just walk down the street on the way home and pick up a couple things at a small grocery store. I mean, it's it's somewhat of a European model, and it's a culture we haven't really embraced here in this country uh, in the last 50 years, but it's coming at us because in order for us to survive and compete as a city, we're going to have to do that. Well, won't the market kind of take care of some of this? Because in our housing series from December, Kathy Carter reported in one of her stories that 28,000 people are moving into Hillsboro every year. That's the size of Temple Terrace. But if it becomes too expensive for those 28,000 people to find homes, they'll go to a more affordable place. They'll go to Pasco or Polk or somewhere else, and then maybe they'll demand better transportation to get to their job in downtown Tampa. But I think to say that the market will take care of it, I'm not sure I believe that because the market has not taken care of it at all. The market goes like water goes to, you know, where there's the least resistance. And so the market will build more housing out in Citrus County, uh, but it won't necessarily respond to the need for public services like transit. So I'm very optimistic about the what will happen with the new tax. And I think we need to be smart about building housing where that transit is going. One thing we were talking about was in Seminole Heights, they've changed the zoning laws so that now you can put a container structure mm-hmm. in your yard. But what are some of the zoning regulations in downtown Tampa, say, that are hindering this kind of building? It's parking, okay. and it's parking, and then it's parking. But interestingly enough, City Council looked at a new text amendment to the parking code that uh, a unit that's 580 square feet or less would now only have to have 0.5 parking spaces per unit rather than one parking space per unit. That's a 50 percent reduction. That just made a lot of our projects much more affordable to build. And also, and, and quite frankly, it's also a marketplace condition as we're seeing people really aren't wanting cars on the level they wanted them before as long as we provide the transportation alternatives well, to, them goes, to make it work. It it's, should it, go hand-in-hand hand with improving the transportation then. You should it, be able to lower the density of the cars. And that's our challenge as architects. It's our challenge as community leaders to make sure we're at the forefront. I think your comment about is the marketplace take care of it. Well, that one cent sales tax that went into effect was our community saying we've had enough do something. What about financing, Robert? Is there a problem? Do people have a problem financing container structure? And what about something like a micro condo, say? I mean, what do banks think about trying to get financing for something like that? Yes. um, Again, that's one of those things that we're starting to move the ball a little bit on. Um, We have now four banks that are lending for our homes. So it's uh, it's starting to happen. It's not the big banks. It's more of the local banks willing to take the plunge. But that continues to be a bit of a challenge is to find larger banks embracing uh, our, you know, kind of new technology and, and uh, modular technology as well. What would you like to see the city of Tampa do to encourage some of these alternative housing projects. Elizabeth? Looking over regulations to make sure that they're all really necessary, whether that's about parking, uh, about setbacks, about size of apartments. But I also, I'm going to answer this in a way that is not all the way you asked it, because I feel it's important. Uh, As much as I think the market and 
new technologies can help us with affordability. We need public subsidies. I mean, if you think about somebody who's earning ten or fifteen dollars an hour, there is no way, no matter how we tweak the size of the apartment, we are not going to provide housing for that person. And so we can't really have this conversation without acknowledging the role of the public sector to help those who can't afford market rate housing. And I would just note that the state of Florida has a marvelous mechanism for doing this, the Sadowski Housing Trust Fund. And since 2002, the legislature has swept that money almost on an annual basis mm-hmm. so that we're now $2.2 billion in the hole right. on, on state funding. We have really gone into depth on, on that issue in our week-long series called Growing Unaffordable. I would send everybody interested to our website, WUSFnews.org. You will find very, very in-depth articles about that very issue, Elizabeth. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Mickey, what can cities do to help more creative solutions? Well, one of the things I think is is uh, taking risk, especially on the parking side. Uh, we've seen a couple of cities within their urban core actually have no parking requirements, that the parking requirement is really a risk that the developer takes on doing it, and they've all been hugely successful. That's incumbent on us as a community then to make sure the support is in there with transit alternatives uh, to make that lifestyle uh, work. But the other thing, too, I think we need to look at new tax laws in order to provide people incentives to live that way. If you want to live downtown and you don't want to have a car, you should get a break on your your homeowner's tax. You should get a break on taxes you pay to the city. You should be rewarded for things that you do that make your city a better place and make that quality of life better. So I think we as a community and leadership need to look at different, again, disruptive alternatives to these kinds of things to provide incentives for people that don't really cost the public entity much in terms of physical dollars but really new ways to look at how do we provide these incentives for people to live that way. If I'm not going to have a car is part of the rent you pay inclusive of a transit pass as long as you live there. Is it inclusive of you being able to use a zip car at 50 percent or you use the bike racks for free? All of these kinds of things are options that we can look at that help the quality of life because it's not the amount of square footage anymore that makes the quality of, of life. It's all the amenities that support where you live that bring the quality of life, which is what we look at from a design standpoint. Are there any new technologies that you see coming online, Mickey, that can help with this whole problem of affordability? So it's, it's smart environment now. Uh, and artificial intelligence. So we're going to see our building systems be able to control your entire environment from uh, the kinds of things we typically think about, what we listen to, our security, but also comfort. And so the affordability will be in the fact that building systems will be so much more inexpensive to work because that system will be able to tell you what the right temperature is. It will make you comfortable. It will be able to take sunlight out of the window so you don't get heat gain. It will be able to do all these things that will drive down the cost of operating. So beyond just rent, now it's the operational costs that we can lower because of new technology breakthroughs. It does sound really exciting, but I have to tell you, it sounds like it would just make your house a lot more expensive if you had windows that automatically got darker when the sun came out. Or are you talking about a multifamily unit that the, maybe the builder would, would pick up that cost? Well, it's all part of the, the cost process. We can we can design very effective houses with these new kinds of technologies in it. It's just making sure we're very thoughtful in the design process and how that's integrated into the cost. But what we're seeing now is as technology continues to evolve, these costs are 
going down mm-hmm. in terms of the ability of manufacturers to provide these products to the marketplace in a much more affordable manner. That's Mickey Jacob, an architect with BDG Architects and chairman of the Tampa Downtown Partnership. We've also been speaking with Elizabeth Strom, an associate professor at the University of South Florida School of Public Affairs, and Robert Cox, the CEO of Sundog Structures. Thank you all so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. You'll find our entire special report, Growing Unaffordable, on our website, WUSFnews.org. And Florida Matters is now available as a podcast. It's another great way to listen whenever is convenient for you. Search for it wherever you get your podcasts or find a link to subscribe by clicking on today's show at WUSFnews.org. Florida Matters is a production of WUSF Public Media. The engineer is George Govan. The producer is Stephanie Colombini. I'm Robin Sussingham. Thanks for listening.